tonight's reading from Psalm 3. Um, Lord, my many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Chloe. If you do have a physical Bible with you, please do keep it open at Psalm chapter 3. We're going to be doing a little bit of Bible flipping this evening, moving around the Old Testament a little bit. So a physical Bible will be really helpful to you if you're one of those super Christians that brings your own Bible to church. If not, of course, a digital version is absolutely fine, and we'll do our best to keep up on the screen. So if you don't have one, that's fine. But if you get your physical Bibles open to Psalm 3, that'll be a big help to you and a big help to me as we work through this passage. Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word, we ask that you would help us. Help us to understand these difficult words of your servant, David. Father, as we hear them, incline our hearts towards you. Open our eyes to understand it. And unite us as a church to serve you faithfully. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm guessing most, if not all of you, have seen the movie Gladiator. Has anyone who's seen the movie, I'll not ask you if you haven't seen it, who's seen the movie Gladiator? Most people, that's good. Uh, I guess most of you weren't born when Gladiator came out, uh, which is a bit depressing. Um, The the most famous moment in Gladiator is surely uh, whenever he stands off against Commodus in the Colosseum, and there's that famous speech, you know, in the gravelly Russell Crowe tones, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. It's one of the most iconic moments in cinema. And it's so iconic, not just because we've been following Maximus's journey, uh, you know, from the heights of the Roman army to being a slave to rising through the gladiator ranks. It's, it's such a satisfying moment, not just because of Maximus, but because of who Maximus is facing. Maximus is standing in the Colosseum against Commodus, the traitorous emperor who usurped the throne that should have been uh, Maximus's, and he's finally going to get his just rewards. You might remember Commodus is introduced at the very start of the movie on the German battlefield as a young, strong, keen son of the emperor, the previous emperor, Marcus Aurelius. But you realize very quickly that he is not all that he seems. And in that awful scene, and spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, Commodus murders his own father and claims the title of emperor for himself. The compelling story, it grabs you. And the situation we find ourselves in in Scripture tonight is not a million miles off. We have a Commodus figure in the Bible, and his name is Absalom. If you've got a physical Bible or even a digital Bible, you'll notice uh, beneath the title Psalm 3, you'll see the words, a Psalm of David, when he fled from his son, Absalom. 
many of you will know, David was the king of Israel, God's chosen people. But while David was on the throne, God's anointed king, his son Absalom tried to usurp the throne. And it's a really, really interesting story. You find it in 2 Samuel. We're going to turn there in a second. It's really interesting because of the way that Absalom usurped the throne. He didn't do it like Commodus in the middle of the night in a fit of rage, smothering his aged father in his sleep. No, Absalom has been working towards getting the throne off his dad for years. If you've got a physical Bible, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15. Keep your thumb in Psalm chapter 3, because we're going to be going back there. And the words will be on the screen if you can't find it. 2 Samuel chapter 15. If you're the sort of person who writes in your Bible, which is a good practice, I commend it. If we, if we had our pew Bibles, I would say don't write in them. But we don't have pew Bibles because of COVID, so there you go. A great little thing to write in the column beside Psalm chapter 3 is 2 Samuel 15, because that is the exact moment that the psalm is describing. Let's read uh, 2 Samuel 15 together. Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom, David's son, not the next in line for the throne, but the son who wanted the throne for himself, has been working his way up the political and social ladder, making deals, forming alliances, building trust for years, gathering people to his side, he attempts to take the throne. And in verse 10 of chapter 15, all of the pieces are in place, and the trumpets in Jerusalem sound out, Absalom is king. Skip down uh, to chapter, oh, sorry, I didn't follow that through. Uh, skip down to chapter 13 uh, of 2 Samuel 15. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Skip on down to verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. All the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. That is the context of Psalm chapter 3, of Psalm 3. This is where we find ourselves. That's, this is what's happening as David pens these words. David, God's chosen king, the most powerful man in Israel, fleeing for his life. He's not fleeing from some foreign nation, 
He's fleeing from his own son. He's trying to kill him. Go back to Psalm chapter 3. Listen to verse 1 again. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. David had previously been the king of Israel. He had the entire army at his disposal, but now he's isolated. We read in 2 Samuel 15 that he had a small team of soldiers trying to protect him, but they are vastly outnumbered. Absalom has not just taken the throne in some sort of military coup. The people are with him. Control their hearts. David is alone. What we find in Psalm 3 is that David wasn't just betrayed by his son. He wasn't just betrayed by the politicians. He wasn't just betrayed by the people. He was betrayed by the religious leaders too. As well as the political officials, Absalom had won over the church of his day. Look at verse 2. They're saying, there is no salvation for him in God. The PR campaign against David hasn't just been political, hasn't just been familial, it's been spiritual. Saying of David, there's no hope for you in God. David's court has turned against him, his people have abandoned him, and he's been betrayed by his son. He's fleeing for his life up the Mount of Olives. He doesn't even have any shoes on, Daniel tells us. Now, if you were David at that point, what would you do? Where would you turn to to find hope, to find refuge? That's what we thought about two weeks ago in Psalm chapter 2, isn't it? I think if I were David, I'd be reaching out to some of the other national leaders, either in Israel, some of the other political figures, or maybe I'd call up the king of Babylon, king of Egypt, and say, remember all those trades we did a while back? I need, I need some help now. I need, to get my, I need to get my throne back. Notice where David turns, verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. David doesn't recite his own previous military victories, which were many. He doesn't say, I am the king. I have the highest status ever. He doesn't rely on himself. He doesn't say my defense is from my military prowess. I was Israel's most successful soldier. Remember I killed Goliath? He doesn't say my honor comes from my victories. He doesn't even say I'm God's chosen king. God chose me. I am the Messiah, the anointed one. He doesn't turn to himself. He turns to God. And he calls God his shield, his glory, and the lifter, his head. What do those three things mean? Well, he calls God a shield around him. What that means is that God isn't just the shield that's on David's arm. We all know how shields work, don't we? No, no, no. The, the picture that David paints here is a little bit like Helm's Deep. So any Lord, lots of movie references tonight. Any Lord of the Rings fans in here? I hope so. Do you remember that scene? Uh, the two towers, Helm's Deep, the orcs are coming up the ramp, and they've got shields on each side. They've got shields above them, and they're trying to shoot the arrows through, but it's 
there's, there's no hope. They cannot get through, and they burst through the door. David says God is a shield around him. He's a, a force field. If you're more of a sort of Marvel fan, that, that might make more sense to you. He's protected on all sides, above and below, side by side. God is his shield. He is the shield around him. Not only is God his shield, he's his glory. What does that mean? It means that David knows that God is the one who gives him any worth, any security. David, God is David's glory. That is what he worships, not himself. God is both the source and the content of David's worth. He knows all things come from his hand. He doesn't glory in himself. He glories in God. And he knows that if he's going to be restored as king, and it's an if at this point, there's nothing certain about it, he knows that it's God who's going to restore him, not himself, not his own political strategy. And lastly, he calls God the lifter of my head. And that's a bit of a strange expression, but that's why we went back to Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 15. Remember David climbing the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem? What did he say? He had his head covered. And he was barefoot. He trudging up the mountain. He didn't even have time to put his shoes on. He's got a cloak over him so no one recognizes him. His head is bent low. What we see in David, a thousand years before Jesus, is a man miserable, rejected, a man of sorrows, surrounded by enemies, betrayed by those closest to him, marching up that mountain, his head bent low. And yet even then, David knew, anyone is going to lift my head God. He declares in his misery, God will lift my head, bent over with sorrow. And if it is God's will, in this life or the next, his head will one day lift. God. This is the God who appointed David. This is the God that David trusts in. It's the same God that offers us salvation today. I know some of you will know the name Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher from 150 years ago. So he said of this psalm, this God who defends the defenseless, gives glory to the despised and joy to the comfortless, well we may say there is no one like our God. God is the only one that can rescue David at this point. What David says next, and when you consider his circumstances, is even more surprising. He's declared who God is. He's his shield. He's his glory. He's the lifter of his head. In verse 4, he calls aloud to God, and he knows God will answer him. David has heard the loud calls of his enemies against him. And so now, in response to their calls against him, David calls out to God. God, who is his defense, his glory, his joy. How David responds to suffering. What a remarkable way to respond. 
reminding yourself who God is, what God is capable of. You see, David has utter confidence. Things have never looked worse for him. He's never been more confident in who God is. And we know that this confidence is real because of what he says in verse 5. Look at verse 5. He lies down to sleep. After declaring who God is, David sleeps. And many, most all of you will know, when we're stressed, when relationships have broke down, when things are not going well, the hardest thing in the world is to sleep, can't it? Because that awful, life-changing news. You feel betrayed, hopeless. You lie in bed, close your eyes, and nothing happens. Your brain just keeps ticking over. You cannot get to sleep. Elsewhere in the Psalms, David says, God gives his beloved one sleep. And in the midst of this situation, David, lying there in the mountains, fearful of being discovered by his own son's mercenaries, rests. You rest in the knowledge that God is in you. David knows that nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing happens outside of God's will. David says, even as I wake from my sleep, I know the only reason that I woke is because you sustained me. What an amazing picture of God's sovereignty. But a lot about it this year in Romans, haven't we? God is sovereign over everything. But you woke up this morning. All of that, that happened under God's sovereign hand. That wasn't a mistake. God was, God is in control. David is confident in God. And he's not confident in God in a sort of stiff upper lip, sort of stoic Denial, do you know, sort of, okay, it'll be grand confidence. It'll all work its way out and it'll all work its way out in the end. But that's not David's confidence. He's not just sort of motoring on out of this sort of sense of rugged manliness. Do you, do you know the sort? Just yesterday, uh, I was having dinner with my father-in-law and he told me about a relative of his who was as hard as nails. He was a proper old school country farmer. I don't, think he had electri- I don't think he had electricity in his house until like the 80s. I think until he died, he drank from the well at the bottom of his yard. He was hardcore. And he told this story of his uncle on the back of a tractor. Um, and uh, someone else was driving the tractor. And his uncle fell off the back of the tractor. And the driver turned around to see what had happened. As he turned around, he drove over the farmer's waist. And he got up and he kept farming. Like, he didn't go to hospital. He just kept going. I don't know what they were doing in the tractor. This guy was as hard as nails. He just kept working. You know the sort, those like rugged, those guys that can just see it through anything? That was this guy. That's not what David's confidence is like here, though. This isn't just a sort of stiff upper lip, I'm hard as nails, I'm going to keep going. He's not in denial about anything. 
ever get ran over by a tractor, it's probably a good idea to go to hospital and just make sure everything's fine rather than say, oh, it'll be grand. Thankfully, in that case, it was grand. I have no idea how it was grand, but it was grand. Look at verse 6. David knows many thousands of people have set themselves against me all around. David is surrounded. He knows God is the shield around him. He's not afraid. He knows that God is in control. And this isn't a sort of prosperity. I know God is going to you know, bring about the best for my life now message. If you go back to 2 Samuel 15, you don't have to do it because we'll say it. It'll only be for a second. I think I put the verse here. No, I don't. Here's what 2 Samuel 15 says. Uh, David is leaving the city and uh, the high priest comes to him and says, you know, David, what are we going to do? And here's what David says as he's leaving the city. I find favor in the eyes of the Lord. He will bring me back and let me see both it, it's the Ark of the Covenant he's talking about, and his dwelling place. But if he says to me, God, I have no pleasure in you. Behold, here I am. Let him do what seems good to him. David isn't naive. He knows that he may die. He knows he may never be reinstalled as the king of Israel. He knows God will bring about his plans. God had promised to send a descendant of David to rescue the world, to be king forever. We know who that king is. David knew that God would bring that about. But he had no idea whether that involved him living or dying. It's not a naive sort of prosperity hope. It's a realistic hope. An eternal hope David has. Previously, David has told, he's told God of his problems. You see that the first sort of uh, four or five verses of Psalm 3 are all about God, uh, David telling God his problems. And now he calls on God. He says, God, here are my problems. You're my glory. I'm going to sleep. And then verse 7, arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David doesn't know how it's going to end up for him, but he knows God is in control. And he calls on God to help. He knows that all God has to do is arise, stand up, and he will be saved. But do you notice what David asks God to do? It's a bit strange. I think if I were David, I would say, God, Stop, Absalom. Put me back on the throne. Wipe my enemies from the face of the earth. But is that what David asks for? Well, no, he doesn't cry out, kill them. Verse 7, he calls on their cheeks to be struck and their teeth to be broken. Why does he want their cheek to be struck and their teeth to be broken? Look back up to verse 2. Which of, David, which of his enemy's actions is David most concerned about? Is it the political betrayal? Is it the assassination attempt on him? No, no, no. David is most troubled by their declaration that God will not save him. They say of me, there is no salvation for him in God. David is most concerned 
about the, these men's mouths. He wants their mouths to be stopped. He wants them to stop saying there's no hope for him in God. So that's what he calls for. Not annihilate them. Just shut them up. Stop them spreading these lies about you, God, about what you've done for me. Many of you will know, some of you might not, and that's fine too. Many of you know that although David is the good guy in this story, David wasn't really a good guy. David was very aware of his own faults and failures. And maybe that's what his enemies were reminding him of, his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. They know that he has failed to live up to God's standard. So they say to him, David, there's no hope for you with God. David knows that's a lie. David knows that despite his sin, there is hope for him with God. We know that this hope isn't a this world hope. He's already said, I may not get back on the throne. But what is this hope that David has? Well, he said he knows God's in control whether he lives or dies. He has this hope. So this hope that David has must transcend this life. It may include this life, but it must transcend this life because he knows that he may not live. He's not certain he'll be restored in this life, but he is certain that he will be restored in the next. You see, David knew that despite his present circumstances, awful though they were, he knew that God had given him. He knew that for certain. He knew that God was not going to punish him for what he had done because God had provided a way for David to escape that punishment. The punishment he deserved, God provided a way in David's time, that was the sacrificial system, which we know pointed towards Jesus. That is, that's the, the most important thing that any of us can grasp from the whole Bible, that in Jesus, forgiveness and reconciliation is possible. And the Christian knows for certain, for certain, that they will spend eternity with God, not because of their own goodness, but because of God's goodness to them in Jesus. Let me ask you, do you know for certain where you will spend eternity? Do you know where you stand with God? The thing is, lots of people, some of us in this room, I'm sure, Think that God grants us access to heaven if we're good enough. They think God's going to accept me because I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good girl. And so they go through their life trying to keep the skills in balance, trying to outweigh the bad things they do with the good things they do. The amazing news of the Bible, if you're a Christian, you'll know this, is that that is not how God works. 
God does not sit with a set of scales and see if your good deeds outweigh your bad. Because the reality is we'll never be good enough for God. It's impossible. God has provided another way. And he's done that in David's great, 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 great grandson. 14 generations. I think there's 14 there. The Lord Jesus, David's descendant and heir, is the means by which God assures us that salvation comes from him, not from us. The Lord Jesus came and lived a perfect life. His scales were fully tipped on the good side of the scales, and he offers that perfect status to anyone who trusts in him. Jesus came and he died an agonizing death. He died that death as a punishment for all of the sins, all of the things on our bad side of our scales. He was punished for those things, though he never did any of those things. And he endured that. He endured that hell so that we don't have to trust in him. Jesus didn't just live a perfect life. He didn't just die a death that pays the, the pays the penalty that we deserve, he also rose again, proving that life after death has been granted to everyone who trusts in him. It's not a cross your fingers and hope that it works. Jesus rose from the dead. We know for certain that eternal life is given to everyone who trusts in him. In just a few moments, I'm going to pray to God I'm going to ask him to forgive our sins through the work of David's great, 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 and so on, grandson, the Lord Jesus. If you're here this evening and you've never trusted in Jesus' work on the cross before, maybe you've heard some of the good things that Jesus said. Maybe you're interested um, in like, you know, some of his ethical teaching, but you've never placed your trust in his work. You've never understood, actually, that's why Jesus died. Not because he was some, you know, political revolutionary. He was a sacrifice. You never realized that before. And you would like to place your trust in the Lord Jesus. You can do that in just a moment using the words that I'm going to pray. And you can know for certain you will escape God's judgment. You can know for certain you will have eternal life. Those of us in the room who have already trusted in Jesus. Like David, we do not need to fear God's judgment. We don't need to fear God's judgment because God has placed that judgment on Jesus. And yet, even though we're Christians, how many of us have been in that position where we've truly repented we sinned again. We feel dirty, broken by that sin. And we can't shake that feeling. We're not really forgiven. You hear that small voice in the back of your mind. You can't honestly ask God to forgive you for that again. Can you? Maybe you hear that from someone else outside of you. Maybe you hear that from your own head. What a great prayer we find in Psalm 
Lord, strike their cheek and break their teeth. That voice that says there's no salvation for you in God. You trust it in Jesus. Your salvation is secure. It's not going anywhere. And forgiveness is possible. It is what Jesus wants. These are fantastic Christians. Verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. The great news of the whole Bible is that God is in control of salvation. Nothing happens outside of his sovereign hand. You're safe in God's hand if you trust in Jesus. He's in control. The amazing thing is that David had this confidence. See, we, as we read of David's flight, we are in a much more privileged position than he is, not because we're not playing for our lives, thankfully. We know far more of God's sovereign saving work than David did. And yet David said these words. It's amazing. See, as David climbed that mountain outside of Jerusalem with his head covered and no shoes on his feet. All he had to base his hope on was God's faithfulness to him and what he knew of God's faithfulness to Abraham and to Moses. We know something far, far greater, don't we? We know God himself in Jesus. Climbing that same mountain, Mount of Olives. Climbing another mountain, Golgotha. Surrounded by foes, betrayed by those closest to him. Far more than David does. So we can be even more certain God's hope than David was. David lay down to sleep in the mountain. We know of Christ laid down to sleep in death. David hoped that God would lift his head. We know for certain that Christ's head was raised by God the Father, resurrected, and ascended to his side, standing between God and us, interceding for us, blessing his people. This knows far more than David did. Christ fulfills all of these things uh, in the Old Testament. So if you're a Christian, you can take David's words and use them as your own. If you're a Christian, then God is your shield. He is your glory. He is the one who will lift your head, maybe in this life, maybe not, definitely in the next. He is the one salvation. I told you earlier, I was going to be praying for forgiveness. And if you've never done that before, then please do join with me. If you're a Christian, uh, you can pray this prayer too. You can remind yourselves of the salvation, the rescue that God has given you. If you're a Christian, please be encouraged by this psalm. Be encouraged that we, as God's chosen people, can say these words with David. We can say them with more certainty 
whom David did. God is our shield. He is our glory. He will lift our heads. On that great day, every single one of us will stand before him. You can say, salvation belongs to the Lord. Why should I let you into heaven? Salvation belongs to the Lord. You, God, you have rested all in your hand. Those words written for God's people in the 5th century B.C. are just as true today for us in the 21st century A.D. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The field glory. He will. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did save your servant David from the hands of his enemies. We thank you even more, Father, that through him you brought your Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Father, we thank you that Jesus walked up that awful mountain by himself to give us salvation. Father, we know that by ourselves, we are naturally your enemies, not worthy to be accepted by you. We know that we are guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring your rule over our lives. Thank you that you sent your son not just to come to this earth to teach us, but to die for us. We might be forgiven. Thank you. We know for certain that if we trust in him, he will be our shield of defense and your righteous judgment. Thank you that he rose again. And by so doing, he promises us eternal life. We long for that day. I pray all of these things in his